This is Story and Rain Talks, the Story and Rain podcast. I'm Tamara, founder and editor in chief. After over 20 years in the fashion and magazine industries, I launched StoryandRain.com, a digital fashion, beauty, and lifestyle publication where we're bridging the gap between reading a magazine and shopping its pages. On this podcast, you'll discover the emerging trends and tastemakers that matter right now. As a catalyst for creativity and through candid conversations with our community of cultural arbiters, we're your resource for discovering today's most interesting people, projects, and products. And we'll explore the origins for game-changing ideas and careers. With our high-low approach to style and the belief that there's magic in the mix, we're going to inspire you to live your most stylish life. Beth Hutchins of Foundry has been an entrepreneur her entire adult life. The ritual of collection and the importance of quality seen in the fine jewelry and home decor brand was what she grew up with in her Quaker home, rich with stories and heritage that Beth says feels alive and present in her everyday life today. It all started when she and her Cynthia Rowley friend and co-worker Rebecca Taylor began making clothes. Rebecca, who wanted to start her own line, and Beth to wear out on the town in New York City's nightclub scene. It was in 1996 when the pair were propelled to join forces to co-found what would become the wildly popular contemporary collection Rebecca Taylor, where Beth was CEO until she followed a whisper to return more closely to her creative roots. The Foundry Collection was born in 2015, and it's gone on to win CFDA and GEM Awards and develop a loyal fan and customer following, due in part to its incredibly distinct standout brand identity in a sea of many and its covet-worthy pieces that beg to be collected and layered. On episode 105, Beth talks about her family's fascinating artistic story and how it's influenced her as a maker. We discuss her creative life in New York before taking the plunge into entrepreneurship and business, helping to establish the Rebecca Taylor brand and build the Foundry brand. She shares what she's learned about working with creatives, how to hire, how to be the best at branding, the details of her own creative process, the art of collaging, how she thinks about design, and the marked differences between the fashion and jewelry industries. We talk about Foundry's one-of-a-kind flagship store and store experience and the brand's customer. We discuss the impact that attention to detail can create, copycatting an intellectual property, and so much more. Listen in for a meaty and inspiring conversation with my favorite self-described jack-of-all-trades, Foundry's Beth Hudgens. Hello. Oh my gosh, hi. I'm so excited to be here finally talking to you. I know, finally. I've been wanting to have this conversation for the longest time. Beth, we've known each other for a while, but I have to say, having this conversation with you, one where I really get to talk to you about your life and your career, I'm so happy about Thank you. It's a thrill. It's going to be fun. What were your surroundings like growing up in a close-knit Quaker family? Can you describe your life in visuals? Sure. I'm really fortunate in the regard that I have so many family heirlooms. The ancestry in my family feels alive and present in our everyday life. Like, look what's on my desk. Beth is showing me museum-quality photos. I feel like I'm getting a history lesson right now. This is my great, great grandmother, Susanna Faulkner Holiday, born 1785. Wow. This is Malcolm uh, Robert Haynes. He's my third great grandfather. 
the first Americans. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. My pleasure. The reason they're here is because I'm going to get them framed and put them on my wall because in my house, they're everywhere. A lot of them were journal writers. So I can really know their personal history. Like I know, for example, this is, you're going to really appreciate this. I know that he, for example, had to walk from North Carolina to Ohio with all of his stuff in a cart with 18 other people. I have a story like that in my family about my grandmother traversing all of Ukraine, basically. Who is this person that you're showing? It's Earl Malcolm. Hey, he then got robbed and he had, I guess people were smart back then. So he had buried his silverware in North Carolina just in case he got robbed along the way. So then he had to walk back to North Carolina to unbury the silverware and then to take another walk back. So he still had some assets left. Isn't that crazy? It's incredible. Yeah. And what creative practices and hobbies and interests were you all about as a kid and then as a teen? From a very, very early age, I did a lot of like salvaging, like I'd like to say antique shopping, but I mean, the reality is, is some of it was like, you know, another person's refuses and other person's treasures, you know? So I salvaged a lot of stuff and then would repurpose it and sew and do crafts. And I remember I took like a piece of remnant fabric that had been, you know, dyed incorrectly and made a skirt out of it and used the damaged part as the real theme of the skirt. It was like this like darker dye part where it had bled the dye and that ended up being the part that I liked the best. You know, we went to auctions all the time. My parents, we always stayed till the latest to like three in the morning because the last call they did these surprise boxes where they would just have a whole bunch of random stuff in the box and they'd go for like a dollar or two dollars and lots of times it'd be like broken things they'd be like you know four clocks and so then my dad would take the broken ones and the parts from that and then put them together to make like one functioning clock that's what we did wow incredible yeah So you did these kinds of things as a family, and that's obviously where you get that from. Oh, yeah, as a family. I mean, it really started on my dad's side, where the Quaker lineage is my mom's side. But for my dad, his mother, Virginia Ray, is really how I named Found Ray. And she did folk art, art out of, you know, found objects, like really anything, like dried fruit or flowers or quilts. As she's from Kentucky. I mean, I just bought something. In fact, this piece of art that I'm crazy about from Cal Lane, that she takes things that she finds from a junkyard and then burns like lace patterns into them. I have it right over here in the corner. Stunning. Yeah. You're a beautiful collector and we see where that comes from. What would you go on to study in school? Oh gosh. So I studied economics because my parents wanted to make sure that I could get a job. Right. Like a lot of parents. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to be in fashion since I was six. And it was so funny because guess where I got it from? Where? Like, Because I didn't know. I mean, come on. I was raised in Brownsville, Texas. It's a yeah. border town, you know, so I didn't know anyone in fashion. But Me neither. I said I wanted to move to New York and be in fashion. And it was because of the opening sequence from Green Acres. Do you remember Zsa Zsa Gabor? Yeah, of course. New York is the place to be. And then somehow she married that guy and then he convinced her to like go to some like backwoods farm. And I was like, why did she do that? (laughs) And then how did you make your way to New York then? So basically I wanted 
to go to school is here. So my second year of college, because uh, I went to University of Illinois, which is like a big 10 school, you know, and I was studying economics, but I wanted to be in fashion. And so, you know, I was talking to the dean and she said that if I took some classes in New York, then they could use those credits to credit my regular degree at U of I. So I did that and I came here for a, a year and then I, you know, got an internship at Cynthia Rally, and, you know, that's how I met Rebecca and that's really how I started. When were you at Cynthia Rowley? I started there in um, 1992. And then I went back to school because she told me that if I hurried up, she would give me my job back. So I had two years left of school and I did a crazy semester, like 24 hours a semester in order to finish my last two years in a year so I could get my job back. But I wanted to have a degree. And describe life in New York City when you first got here. What were you doing? Who were you hanging out with? And where did you live? Well, I waitressed at nighttime. Where did you waitress? Asta La Pasta. <laughs> so good. It was like a basement level Italian place. Yep. You know, my salary was nothing. It was like 22000 a year. And so, you know, I needed to waitress at nighttime to make some money. And then we lived in Brooklyn. But back then it was really, really rough. Brooklyn wasn't a destination or a coveted place to live. It used to be filled with longtime native New Yorkers and immigrants. My grandmother and my mother lived there for a time after coming to New York and living on St. Mark's Place. We were on Underhill and St. John's Place. And now there's like, you know, the Frank uh, Gary building. And it's so nice. Back then it was seriously gunshots every night. And I got mugged six times the first year I lived here. I remember my grandmother telling me her story about getting mugged in McCarran Park. Yeah. And so where were you spending your time? It was like classic, you know, where we would want to go out at nighttime, Friday, Saturday nights. And so then we would sit there in our kitchen making our outfits till 10 p.m. <laughs> I mean, not everybody was doing that, but you guys were. <laughs> oh, yeah, shoot. Yeah. Can you remember one of your best homemade we're going out to the club outfits? Uh, yeah. Tell me. It was when Tom Ford had taken over Gucci. Oh, yes. And did the black flat front pants with like a slight demi boot cut. Oh, it was such a good pant. Yeah, yeah. The demi boot cut. It was so funny. And it felt so fresh and like, what? Like it blew our mind. It was a new shape of pant. Yeah. yeah. With the satin charmeuse shirts and those like electric colors. Remember? That teal color, yes. that gorgeous aqua. Yes. And the horse spit belt. Yes. I splurged for that belt. So I made the black flat front pants out of scuba fabric. So they were really like thick and held me in. That's how you get that good boot cut shape. Oh, yeah. And then the shirt was the brightest like electric blue charmeuse. I thought I was like so Gucci. I really did. It's incredible that you guys were making your own clothes. Where were you going out? Where were you wearing these outfits? Oh, gosh. I mean, this was like, you know, Limelight, Save the Robots. You know, it was the whole like downtown scene. Yeah. It's interesting. On the podcast, I just had a conversation with somebody who referenced that exact Gucci look. <laughs> You're kidding me. No, no, no. I wonder if she saw me at the club and just felt like overwhelmed with how cool I look. <laughs> So you've always had this intricate eye for detail, clearly, since you were a kid. We'll talk more about that when we get into all things Foundry, your jewelry brand. But what do you attribute that sort of precise, intricate eye for detail that you have? 
I would probably say passion, but nothing can be too storied for me. And so in every detail, there's a story. And so I like to layer it. You know, Leora and I, you've known Leora forever. We always talk about things on things. And I like that layered, you know, layered, 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 maybe starting off with one concept, but then adding something and then adding something. And then it gets this like richness and depth that I love. Mm-hmm. I would never, ever describe my aesthetic as clean, <laughs> you know, what I mean? clean or singular. Yeah. Yeah. Like I remember a couple of years ago, it was so funny. Somebody asked me about my style aesthetic. I was sitting in front of them. Okay. I mean, and you look, look how many, like, look what I'm wearing. Okay. And she goes, would you describe your style as, I forgot what she said, but as simple or, you know, and I was like, Definitely simple. <laughs> like, yeah, no, no. You just described it. It's layers. It's opposing elements. Yeah. It's layering jewelry and, and layering accessories to create a multi-dimensional story. And that's what Foundry is. Yeah, you're right. And I always have something on that's kind of homemade. So it's so funny that we're talking about this. Because, I mean, look beside me, I've got a wolf patch that one of my friends gave me that I'm going to put on a jacket. You know, I constantly shop through like Etsy. You know, I love people taking vintage things and repurposing it. I love the brand Dry Clean Only that does repurposing of vintage stuff, you know. And two weeks ago, we had a photo shoot and we made, and just for the photo shoot, because I made a joke because we said that we looked like we were in like a band. The band's name was well spent. I made up with Amelia, one of the girls that works here, iron on decals that say well spent. And it had like our list of songs and it was like our second tour. And I went by a label store that, you know, he has a store called Military Surplus on Church Street, which I go every day. Okay. And I just got all this random Boy Scout shirts and vintage military. And I ironed on these foundry patches, but then also the iron-ons of, you know, well-spent. And I gave them to everybody at the beginning of the shoot. Gosh, it was just so fun. You know, you just described how real creators in fashion do what they do. I mean, oftentimes it's about creating that backstory, but I love your point about why you have such an intricate eye for detail and that it stems from passion. Wait, wait, I have something to tell you. Better word for passion. One of my friends just said to me the other day that I have a lust for life, that he got that from that Iggy Pop song. Yes, it's simple, but it's pretty profound. How do you think this skill has helped you not only as a designer, but also in business and as an entrepreneur? Well, I mean, Believe it or not, I have that same level of attention to detail when it comes to business operations, you know, organizational structures, job descriptions. I think I really recognize the value of every single person and role they play in a business and how integrated it is. It's like this careful balance between freedom to think outside the box along with enough structure where they can work harmoniously with the next role. So I feel like it's something that I've always really, you know, worked at doing. And luckily, you know, I have 20 years of experience of being a CEO from Rebecca Taylor. You know, that gave me a lot of training. You know, I started that when I was 23 
you know, I'm not going to underestimate how helpful it is that, you know, I grew that business from just me and Rebecca to you know, hundreds of employees. And so we learned that. So that's like, you know, school of hard knocks, you know, where you learn it along the way. So luckily I found Ray, I had a much shorter learning curve. I could apply what I learned from a prior business. We're going to talk about your time at Rebecca Taylor, but you just mentioned balance. Yeah. And I have a question for you about balance since, since you're such a creative person yeah. who has also, as you just described, been so heavily involved in the business side of things for your entire career. Is there a balance in that for you? Do you love and feel aligned with both or does the creative side of you tug away at you infiltrate your thoughts? Honestly, I'm almost completely in the creative part now. Um, we just hired a president. Her name's Ruth Summers. I needed to walk away from that aspect. You know, to try to do both is pretty impossible. Well, when you just were explaining that the attention to detail in your creativity, the attention to detail in business, I was getting exhausted just thinking about it. Yeah, that. me too. <laughs> yeah. That's a lot. So you're explaining that you have given that over a little bit. When we first conceived a foundry, I thought that it was just going to be, you know, the one store, and you know, me living upstairs and, you know, maybe eight employees. And, and so in that respect, I did do both sides. And at the beginning, it was just, you know, Leora and I, and then Tiara came on board and, you know, one at a time people came on board. Then, you know, a couple of years ago, Marat started dedicating more time to foundry. Your husband. Yeah, yep. You know, as the business grew, but really it came to a point last year where I was, just really still doing so much of the strategic planning and operations and, you know, writing out every single job description, hiring every single person. And then I couldn't, for example, concentrate on everything. And so like, I wasn't concentrating on the images, for example, I couldn't attend the photo shoots, you know, because I just had too much on my plate. Now we hired the president that could take over, you know, all of that part from me, mm -hmm. the overseeing the production, you know, the purchasing, those things, I did it, you know, I did hundred percent of the purchasing for, you know, the last seven years. And so now I don't, and I'm just overjoyed because now I can sit there and really concept out a photo shoot. I just kind of wrote a short story that our whole photo shoot was just based on. And it, it allows me to really kind of sink further into the creative process. And that's where I want to be. I mean, that's what gives me joy. How do you believe you get your best ideas? When do they come to you? I journal every single day. I have dozens of red leather bound journals. What is this red journal? What type of journal is this? We actually made some last year, but we do this with graphic image. I love graphic image. We did some last year with our symbols on it and stuff. Oh, I love. And do you always use a particular pen or pencil? No, not, not about the pen or pencil, but I'm very much about cutting things out and taping it in and writing in notes. And I'd say the way I design is very much of a collage. I'll take stamps or, you know, old memorial stuff and put it together or take a, a vintage piece and then erase all the details and then draw it in, you know, and so um, that, that's my creative process. Foundry really is kind of, you know, uh, an amalgamation of the aesthetics such as that, like things that inspire me, but also really autobiographic in terms of, you know, what I'm thinking about and what's inspiring me. And then really trying to meld those two things together. 
it's beautiful to think about a brand created based on somebody's very personal and intricately sort of put together journal. I think that's so wonderful. Thank you. I mean, it's important to me. You know, I talk about Foundry as tools of self-discovery and self-expression. And the reality is, is they're also my tools of self-discovery and self-expression. And I feel like what I'm trying to do is share them along the way. Right. I try to, you know, give the creative reins to the customer so they can design their own piece and customize it exactly how they see it. And then we get inspired. Creativity is such a two-way street. And so we're so lucky that we have a store and that we get to meet the people that come in every single day. And when people talk about what resonates with them and they'll tell me something that's going on in their own personal life, it'll make me reflect and think further about a symbol or an idea that we have. And then I tend to then extrapolate then on top of that. Again, it's it's like these layers that we talked about where then it gets deeper and richer and we go back in. I feel like we're constantly really adding depth depth to each idea. And I'm thinking about Foundry and what you mentioned in terms of, you know, allowing the customer to really build and customize. There are a lot of jewelry brands out there that opt to do that, who try to do that, but Foundry does it in a masterful way. Thank you. I mean, I just truthfully... I just feel so grateful to be able to do this every day. Grateful. We did a book giveaway two days ago and I had all these stamps made recently. So I just, you know, grabbed the stamps and started stamping the outside of the books. And I just looked at Catherine and and at Kelso and I said, I mean, can you believe this is like our job (laughs) that we get to do this? And the books themselves, like, you know, we had ordered them from Persephone books out of Bath, the UK. What they try to do is they republish female authors that have gone out of distribution. And then on the inside cover, they do a textile print that was designed in the same year that the book was published. I mean, it's those details that just makes my heart sing. In 1996, you co-founded the wildly popular, highly established now brand, Rebecca Taylor. And you talked about meeting her during the Cynthia Rowley days. Yes, yes. How exactly was this idea hatched? Take us back to that time and literally how it all came together. I sat next to Rebecca at Cynthia Rowley. We were both assistant designers, but um, you know, pretty much everyone there was called assistant designer. I'd say that I was a little bit more of like a, I did purchasing and research for all the materials like fabrics, buttons. I mean, that's a system designer job. But anyway, it was such a a growth time for Cynthia. And for us, we got to learn so much. And so we would sit side by side where Rebecca really worked more on patterns. You know, she would make the patterns and then I'd be finding the materials. And then one day she just whispered to me, I think I might want to leave and start my own company. And then I looked, I go, I'll do it with you. Such a good story. Yeah, that was it. I got it. Yeah. And she was like, really? And I was like, yeah. So yeah, that was it. She quit right away and started making the dresses in her apartment where, you know, I stayed for probably another, I'd say month or two months. Not long. I mean, you know, we both knew what we were going to do. It's just that, you know, she was making the dresses. So then I was still there. And then we got our first showroom, which was the Annette B showroom. Oh, Annette B showroom. Yeah. What were challenges like for you in the beginning? What did you have to quickly learn? Oh my gosh. I mean, I mean, if you could think of like one or two. 
Oh, I mean, it was money. I mean, we just did not have money. We started the business with a loan of $40,000 and then it just, that was gone in a couple of months. So we always had to be profitable from day one. You know, now I think a lot of people have a different attitude. They get investors and they say, okay, we're going to run at a loss for the first three to five years. But, you know, we didn't have that opportunity because we didn't have access to money. We couldn't hire anyone. So we did all the jobs ourselves. You know, we would work till... 1130, you know, 12 every night, seven days a week. And at six o'clock, we would start our next job. We would do like one job during the day. And then, and we actually cut all of our own clothes because we tried to save the money. For people that don't know, that's a very costly part of the process, right? Yes. We had our own, you know, the, that like razor cutter, we would cut out all the pieces and, you know, we were always running to the, the local factories and stuff. We shipped everything ourselves, boxed it. We had to squeeze any profit we could out of every single piece because that was the only way we could invest in the next collection. You were at Rebecca Taylor between 1996 and 2011. You were purchased by Kelwood in 2011. You served as CEO between 2011 and 2014. Yep, you're exactly right. So then I left December 2014 and then you know started Foundry January 2015. My question was, and you talked a little bit about this. Yeah. What role were you in during the course of all those years back at Rebecca Taylor? Did it change a lot? I mean, you talked about in the beginning wearing many hats. Oh, yeah, it did. Yeah, it did. It's a good point. At the very beginning, I liked it better, actually. It was much more creative. I still did resourcing fabrics and I was the fit model. I love that. I was the fit model until 2010. And so being the fit model is, you know, really creative because you're trying on every single piece, you're making comments like, can you open up the neckline? And, you know, this doesn't fit right. And I was really the merchant too. So those things were quite creative, you know, where always trying to take Rebecca's concepts and then figure out how we can have a second version that, and I would request that. It was Rebecca's aesthetic vision by all regards. You know, I would never want to take that away from her. But I still had a lot of creative input. You know, I was really into vintage stuff. So I would constantly be, you know, really, I was the main person that would, you know, just source vintage references and stuff just because it was such a passion of mine. Which is so important. I mean, yeah, yeah. And I loved it. You know, we've talked about how you founded this brand in 1996. I mean, you were 23 years old, Yeah. you know, at the very, very beginning of your career. How did that prepare you to continue to take creative risks going forward? I would say that I think I'm more capable of taking risks. You know, like for Foundry, I feel that you could just put one foot in front of the other every single day, see what happens and keep on putting one foot in front of the other. I think sometimes people try too hard to think what are my next 10 steps and then maybe that feels insurmountable to them or it feels daunting or overwhelming and I think that if you just think like I'm going to take this one step in front of me that then you can do it and then you know time passes and all of a sudden you look back and then you see wow oh my gosh I just crossed two city blocks (laughs) you know honestly like that's how I've spent the last, you know, what, 20, 30 years, one step at a time. And then all of a sudden you look back and reflect on these and you just, you're pretty shocked at how much experience and 
everything that has happened, you know, and I just feel really grateful for every single one, you know, and I love, I love talking with friends and people from each one of those experiences. And we can like laugh and talk about things that happened. And it it just feels like yesterday. And it's not just about memories, you know, it's like today, every day we're building these new memories at Foundry and it's, it's the same thing. You know, I, I just love this interconnectedness, you know, that we talk a lot about like a creative collective. That's what this is. You know, I do not do anything by myself, nothing. And I really, really believe in the power of collaboration. On the topic of memories and sort of when you look back, you know, Rebecca Taylor was all that people wanted to wear at the time. What was the secret sauce in the fashion? Truly, it was the beginning, which was really our best years in terms of covetability. You know, it really goes back to that handmade thing, I want to say. At the very beginning, we really did handmake each piece. Everything would have a detail, like hand embroidery and stuff like that. As the business grew, it got more commercial. That's what, truthfully, I don't want for Foundry. Luckily, I, I've seen that happen. And so probably another jewelry designer would be tempted to like go into department stores or something. You know, you get tempted by volume. I just am not going to do that because I've been there and you just end up having to like build into people's needs, meaning like store buyers and stuff. I don't want to do that. I've always said, you know, to the team here, we're not going to be everything for everybody. Yeah. It dilutes the artistry. Yeah, it does. And not just that, but there's so many talented people out there. I just don't want to swim or fish in their pond sometimes, you know, like for example, Brent Neal, she does a great job with taking people's diamonds and repurposing them. So that's just something I never need to do because uh, she's already doing it great. I love that perspective from you. You know, so whenever a customer comes to us and says, you know, I've got this diamond, you know, I'd really like to do something with it. I say, super, let me introduce you to Brent (laughs) because she does it great. (laughs) You know, I just feel like unless I had a really different point of view on that, I just don't see any purpose of doing it when there's somebody out there that's doing it really, really well. What advice do you have for managing creative people? I would say respecting their creative vision. I really believe that I have my truth. They have their own truth, you know, and it says like your creative truth, but then you put that together and you reach something new, like the new truth that we couldn't have got to on our own. We have that across the board here. It's not just designing jewelry. It's also when we work with the glass makers or when I work with photographer that we work with, we work with artists. And so it's constantly taking disparate visions and then uniting them in a way that you get something that we're not capable of doing on our own. You mentioned hiring. What is your advice for hiring people? You have so much experience in that. Oh, thanks. For me, it's all about passion. The person has to love what they do. I feel like that there's energy givers and energy takers. Mm. And I really, really like energy givers. I'm an energy giver. And so I feel like when people love what they're doing, then they're generating energy by doing it. And then you end up feeling energized by it, you know, and it feeds you. Describe an energy taker. What does the energy taker do? An energy taker kind of drains the room, you know, with the negativity or their agenda. Yeah. You know, I feel like makes people doubt themselves. 
you know, if you're an energy taker, then you kind of take away other people's power, maybe because you're afraid of your own. I I don't know, but I don't want to take away anyone's power. I really love to see people in their glory. As described in your story about we're not going to repurpose diamonds. Here's somebody you can go to. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good point. Yeah. I like seeing people excel, you know, and be themselves. It just feels beautiful to watch. That's a beautiful trait in you. Speaking of traits, what are your greatest strengths? It's so funny. I would say probably this is going to be for my mom. Well, I remember when I was 13, I was watching a TV show of concert pianists, like teen concert pianists. And I had wanted to be a concert pianist slash fashion designer. (laughs) So I started crying. And my mom said, what? Why are you crying? I go, because I am never going to be that good. And I go, and it's your fault. (laughs) And she goes, wait, what? And I'm like, yeah, you're the one that raised me to be a jack of all trades, master of none. I go, why didn't you just have me focus on one thing growing up so I could actually be really good at something? And I remember my mom was like, you know, just kind of floored. And she's like, what do you mean? Like, you are good. I'm like, no, mom, I'm like, really not really good at anything. And then I I go, even if you had let me play pool and like learned how to be this incredible pool player, I would have appreciated that. I have such an appreciation. I often reflect on people that have natural talent and things like that and things like music or, you know, singing or writing, you know, and then there's so much value in being that kind of jack of all trades. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's my whole point. So now I'm going to say right here on and a recorded program that I think probably my greatest strength is that I'm a jack of all trades. I love it. And oh, look at that. My mom's going to rub this in. Because then I remember when I was pregnant for the first time, she said to me, all right, Beth, this is the moment of truth. Are you going to raise your child to be like jack of all trades or master of none? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's so funny. So this is a definitely like an important theme in, in my life. And so I guess now finally, I'm, you know, what, 49 years old, I'm finally saying, okay, all right, I, I'm a jack of all trades and I'm, I'm okay with it. It's such an interesting subject to contemplate. In 2015, you launched Foundry, your brand that has since won CFDA, GEM, and other awards. How did the idea for the jewelry brand, which is now extended to home, take shape? And do you remember kind of where you were and why you decided to do it? There's a couple of moments. So one of the moments was I was having coffee well, me tea and her coffee outside of my kids' school. I was talking about ghosts, you know, with my friend Margie, Margie Chala. And then we were having such a good conversation. And I was feeling really excited and animated. And then all of a sudden I looked up the time and I knew I had to go because I had a meeting. And I said to her, well, I'm going to get my drag CEO outfit on now. And that was interesting for me to put that into words and realize I was playing a role. I felt very compartmentalized where, you know, I had my worship and I, you know, really devoted a lot of energy and time there. You know, I I had my, you know, obviously my kids for a creative outlet. I'd made like miniature houses on the weekend, really spent a lot of time with that. I hollowed out books, you know, I baked a lot, you know, I had different creative outlets and, but when you're that compartmentalized, it's pretty exhausting to feed everything, you know? And so 
my real goal for Foundry was to be able to wrap everything that I love all together in one whole life. I totally get it. Yeah. You know, it's everything I love. It's, you know, it's reading, it's, it's antiques, it's research, it's creative, it's, you know, dealing with people and reaching out. And, you know, we get to do all sorts of advocacy initiatives. It's really in line with my worship. They all feed off each other. So it's kind of like when I doing work for one, like Pan America, you know, I'm on the board of that for the gap. We're going to talk about that. I can't oh, really? wait to talk to you about that. Then, oh, yeah. You know, it ends up also being, you know, inspiration for the line. I end up being able to be a lot more efficient and more creative because everything that I'm doing really complements each other. You're connecting the dots and that probably feels very satisfying. Very satisfying. Yeah, I love it. Foundry has such a strong and specific brand identity. That's attention to detail at play. I want to talk to you about branding. What makes for a standout brand? I talk a lot to other designers about branding because I, you know, people ask me and I try to help and give them best advice I can, which really is about identifying what is your point of view. Everybody has this unique background and unique vision that is singularly theirs. But I think some people have a hard time kind of believing in it or not being influenced by another person's point of view or, you know, thinking maybe no one will like this and instead I should do something more like this, you know, but if you really, really just distill what is your unique point of view, that's a brand right there, you know, and you build on that and then it will always evolve. It will never get stale because you evolve, you know, where if I'm doing someone else's vision, you know, or my interpretation of them, well, then it's going to go wrong sometime because I will not be able to guess what's next because it's not me. Do you, you know what I'm saying? Absolutely. And yeah. also how important is it for all aspects of a brand's identity to be fully fleshed out? I think there are a lot of makers of brands out there that don't think about the power in the little things and the overall effect that all the little things can have. I mean, it's the same thing what we talk about. It's attention to detail. So I totally agree with you that I think it's, you know, all aspects, but it's interesting because it's not like I set about saying, I'm going to make sure that I, you know, dot every I and cross every T in order to make sure that Foundry has this, you know, really identifying, like it just comes. It's just the way that you approach. Yeah. It just comes natural. I just get excited. It's like being a kid in a candy store. I just look at everything and I'm like, yes, yes. I'll look at a pencil, you know, and I'll be like, oh my gosh, like let's print our tenants on this and use it in the store. Most of the time, actually not trying to sell those things. I think people go wrong when they try to take those ideas and think, and I'll sell them. And I just feel like you have to be really careful about that, you know, and don't just try to, you know, sell anything. I think it's important that you use a little bit of restraint when you think of your collection and what you're offering out there. I I like making things and giving them to people, truthfully. Like if something doesn't kind of fall under the real, you know, the lens of being able to be truly like a modern heirloom where it can be inherited or passed down then to me, we shouldn't be selling it. Like I just made scarves 
because why not? Because, you know, you know, my background, I love a scarf, I love a scarf, I can print fabric and make things. I'm, you know, I laid out the print myself, you know, because I really, you know, familiar with repeats and all that stuff. But we didn't sell them because I don't want to. I'll take a scarf. <laughs> well, you have about 12 to choose from. I'll totally buy a scarf from you. You can't. That's the whole point. But I'll give you one. I love stuff like that. I feel like that kind of stuff is creative, you know, where you can really just explore different mediums and feel inspired. Thoughts on the fine jewelry industry and market in three words. I would say warm. Coming from fashion, you know, it was really refreshing. I mean, I was friends with everybody in fashion. So like, for example, even today, I just ran into Wen from Philip Lim. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting because people would always say like, it's so weird that you're like actually friends with the other brands. I never felt that weird hostility towards people. But in general, in fashion, if you put eight designers in the room, they're in eight separate corners with their, you know, teams around them. Where in fine jewelry, it's just not the same. It's a smaller industry where you really can just make one piece at a time. And so a lot of people are operating by themselves, you know, out of their homes or, you know, running up and down 47th Street. So I think by the time you get to be around other people in the industry, you feel just excited, you know, to, you know, that you're in the room with other people that, you know, love doing what you do. So it's warmer. Any other words to describe fine jewelry industry? Yeah. I mean, I love the permanence of it. I love that each piece is really intended to be owned for a lifetime and that hopefully, you know, the next lifetime, the next generation. There's nothing fast about right. it, right? There's it's, nothing. Yeah. And the fact that it's truly like a handmade product, that every single piece is made by hand, that there, there is no such thing as like a mass produced piece of jewelry. There's just not, you know, and how many people... It, it takes to make one single piece. You know, you've got like the, the person that specializes in the diamond setting. You've got, you know, the person that specializes in the Champlevay enamel process. And each person has to be not just good, but great at their role. Because, you know, it's like, it's a classic, you know, thing where it's like the quality of the piece is only going to be as high as the weakest link, you know? So like everyone can make an incredible beautiful piece. And then if the polisher over polishes that you've lost it, right? You've lost the piece. You know, again, we talk about collaboration and that's just a perfect example is that when you're looking at a piece that is perfect, 10 people had to do their role perfectly. So there's just so much room for error, you know, and it makes each piece, you know, subtly unique too, which is, I think, beautiful. Me, myself, as a longtime fashion and accessories editor, I have really particularly close ties to the fine jewelry industry. And with the many brands out there and the many copycats of those brands, you know, copycatting is notorious in jewelry. Right. What does Foundry do that no one else does and what cannot ever be replicated? It's really the gestalt, you know. And so it's funny because, you know, while we've talked a lot about all the details and when it comes to a single piece, it can be copied and it is copied. Like if you Google Foundry on Etsy or whatever, you'll see a million copies. And to try to like chase that thing, I think that's just a waste of energy. You know, it's disappointing 
for a while, I would really hurt my feelings actually, you know, and I would DM people and just be like, you know, that is my art. It would really upset me when people would have this like story where they'd be like, I've been working so hard designing this piece. Oh, that adds insult to injury, right? Yeah, that would be particularly painful for me. And I'd be like, wait, what? Or, you know, or when they would give a different meaning to the symbolism or something. I don't even look now. There's nothing I can do about it. Yeah, I mean, I think you just touched on it. I was going to ask you this sort of big question of how do you protect your intellectual property? And the bigger question, which is, can intellectual property ever really be protected? No, no, it can't. You know, when we opened up our store on Lisbonard Street, my friend said, you know, that's so cool. You're opening up right next to Louis Vuitton and Gucci. Um, They were, you know, referring to all the fake purses that are sold on Canal Street. (laughs) Those little boutiques that are lining the the sidewalk. If they can't stop it and if they can't fight it, how am I going to, you know? Right. What do you love most about Foundry pieces and also about the Foundry customer who we talked a little bit about? Both are entirely and beautifully unique. I can't tell you enough about the customer, which is both men and women, all ages. And I constantly tell the team is I define our customer as seekers, you know, people that really are seeking to evolve and really be the best version of themselves and expand the light, you know, and it, it makes for this incredible life where we get to meet very special people every single day that treat the team with so much love and come in, you know, excited to be there. And we tell the team, like, you're not selling anything. All you're trying to do is really to be like a conduit and share background and information about each piece, but you're not selling anyone on anything because they're going to end up deciding if the piece resonates with them or not, or they might want to come a dozen times before they you know, land on something that has really been the ethos from the beginning, which is why we have, you know, a lending library and the store of books, because I wanted right away to tell people like you belong here without purchasing anything, you know, so come in, grab a book, you know, we have these classic library cards, you know, just write your name on it, throw it in the box and take off, you know, with the book. To me, I think those are like really subtle ways of saying, you know, like you're welcome in this space. And then we also have, you know, our cards on the wall that have all the meanings and, and they're in like stacks, people help themselves to them. And it's the same thing. Come on in, take any of these symbols you want, take a look at the meaning, put them on your boards at home and, and leave. I don't like the idea of transactional relationships. I I don't like, it was so funny because somebody emailed us the other day it was, you know, someone I already have met through Foundry introduced me to her friend. And they said, I'd really like to come in and have tea with you. And I said, great. So she came in with three of her friends and I had set up some tea and we're talking and talking and talking. And then after a while, they're like, well, can we see some jewelry? And I'm like, oh, I, I thought you were just here. Tea. <laughs> right. Oh, there's that. No, but I really thought that they just wanted to have tea and I was really enjoying it. And I hadn't even begun to think about showing them jewelry. And I, and it was so funny because I knew they were out of time and I was out of time. So then I was like, oh, I guess, I guess you'll have to come back. <laughs> <laughs> we're talking about the Foundry customer. We're talking about the flagship store experience. What else was important to you in creating the space? You know, 
you, there's also this downstairs and you invite people down there for certain reasons. What else was in designing the incredible, exquisite space that is the Foundry flagship? What else were you thinking about besides what you just mentioned? We didn't want it to look like a jewelry store, you know, so having that, you know, bookshelves and library was really important to me. Marat did a great job translating that into, you know, the beautiful, you know, store that you see. And then I really wanted, you know, the actual bench jeweler on the premises making the pieces, you know, so that was part of the store concept. We wanted to really, you know, give those tools to the customer and let them be there with the bench jeweler creating their own unique piece. What inspires you? And do you find that all your inspiration these days kind of funnels itself into Foundry? When you get inspired, do you have Foundry glasses on, so to speak? Well, I just write things in my journals and some ideas need like two years of seasoning before they really kind of, you know, come to life. Other ideas, uh, there's just ideas and they're in my journals and they haven't actually fleshed out yet. So, you know, and they may or may not. Sometimes things come back to me where I feel like, oh my gosh, like I was on that path a couple of years ago. And it's never about like a trend or anything. It's always about meaning where I start to see a symbol more often or I'm reminded of it. Yeah. What's next for the brand? I'm really excited for your event in a couple of weeks. I know that. I'm so excited. It's reverie, the path to joy. And I'm feeling it. I have to tell you, I am feeling it. Me too. It just feels great to be joyful and to celebrate and to really cherish every single moment and every single day. And that's the place I'm in. I love that. And we'll see that in all of your work. Yeah. I want to talk before we go, we're going to wrap soon with your six list of favorite things, which I cannot wait to hear about because I know there's great stuff there. It's so funny because I really like stream of conscious things. It's funny because most people don't like that, you know, and have gotten very stumped No, and even for work, like when we do videos and stuff like that, we always just do one taping and then I I never look at it and we just walk on. Oh, see, like most people are like, ooh, wait. Well, you know what? That's your journaling kind of practice, right? That's that stream of consciousness thing that you're so practiced with. Beth, I want to talk before we go about your involvement with PEN America, a nonprofit organization that works to defend and celebrate free expression in the United States and worldwide through the advancement of literature and human rights. Truly incredible work, truly incredible work. Of all the organizations to get involved with, why PEN America? This is what I mean about the whole everything feeds off each other. You know, we were talking about ancestry before. Yes. I feel, and you know, my mom and my sister, we feel that a, a very important legacy of our family is protecting freedom of expression. And so I had a great, great, great grandfather that in 16, you know, 50 something uh, signed the Flushing Remonstrance. Do you know what that is? No. It's the first document of religious freedom in the United States. Interesting. It was a precursor to, you know, to the Declaration of Independence and stuff like that. But anyway, the Flushing Remonstrance asked for freedom for Quakers, Jews, and Turks. 40 people signed it and Flushing Queens. Interesting. I'm a Queens girl. 
Yes, Flushing Queens. You know, like the James Bowen house. Yeah, of course. The James Bowen house is so famous because of this document. So anyway, so one of my grandfathers signed it. And then what's so interesting is then his grandson is actually one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence and used some of the language from the Flushing Remonstrants in the Declaration of Independence. I imagine it as this like kind of, you know how we have our own documents on our computer and we're being lazy and we're like cut and paste. I'm sure they did the same. They're like, you know what? We need some religion, you know, protect some religious freedom in this document. Hey, I've got a document here that, you know, my grandfather wrote. That's a good reference. You know, I think that stuff happens. And so anyway, so being Quaker, you know, obviously, you know, we had a strong heritage of equality. And, you know, when it came to being abolitionist from very early stages and participating in the Underground Railroad, it just matters to me. You know, and so when I had the ability to participate, you know, the very first thing we did was we did an event with Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. I remember I was there. Yeah. Fabulous. I love everything about that organization. I mean, what Pan America does on a daily basis just dwarfs anything that I could ever imagine accomplishing in my life. And so if I can be a tiny part of that in which my role, you know, is really helping with like marketing and getting people excited about it, getting exposure for Pen America and like fashion magazines. We'd love to be a part of it. We really would somehow. It's great. Yeah. I mean, shoot. Yeah, for sure. So I, I mean, I love, love, love being part of that organization and I want to contribute to that for the rest of my life. All right, Beth, what's on your sixth list of favorite things? What six things are you so into right now? Okay. Miniatures. Miniature what? Miniature everything. You know, like little tiny bikes, little tiny food things. Just today I have this new like gold tiny miniature bike. I like anything miniature. So cute. Vienna. I just came back from Vienna. Oh, I haven't been in a while. I mean, incredible. Uh, Carl Jung. If people ever ask me that question, like who do you want to have dinner with? It would be Carl Jung. Is there a favorite writing or teaching? I mean, it's mostly about, you know, synchronicity. I really believe it. And so we've decided, like me and my group of friends, instead of being like, that's crazy when something crazy happens, instead we now say, of course. Yeah, I'm very much an of course person too. Yeah, of course. And so anyway, shrimp. How are you cooking shrimp these days? Uh, I'm not, I'm just eating it. I ate it at lunch at La Mercerie. They have this great avocado shrimp dish. I love that dish there. Yeah. And then my new piano, which is a black Steinway baby grand. That's exciting. Really exciting. Actually made in New York, made in Flushing. I'm going to go visit the factory in a couple of weeks. I can't wait. I mean, come on. What a privilege. You can go to actually the Steinway factory and see how it's being made. Absolutely. I'm definitely going to name her, but I don't know what yet. Right. You have to see her before you name her. Yeah. And I got to live with her for a while. Yeah. Get to know her quirks and idiosyncrasies. Last one. Montauk. Montauk. I just rented a place with some friends and I'm going to go there this Friday for the very first time. Oh, I'm so excited for you. Yeah, we're going to, we're making a little painting studio and we're going to do a lot of yoga and create and make collages. And I'm really, really excited. We just had our photo shoot in Montauk actually at the old Warhol ranch about um, two weeks ago. So now like I'm all about Montauk. I hope you have a wonderful summer. It sounds like it's going to be great. 
And part of me is like, what a great story. I'd love to take pictures of you and your crew being creative in Montauk all summer. How fast. Why don't you actually come and be creative in Montauk? What would be better than that? Exactly. Beth, you're extraordinary. Thank you so much for chatting. Thank you for being on the podcast. Okay, let's get together real soon.